Welcome everyone to Appamata's 2021 Precepts program. Um, I'll start by saying it's, I'm not going to use the term class, right, because this is not uh, a lecture series or something where uh, myself or the other guest teachers who will be here uh, are going to just rain our knowledge down on you. This is a program, an experience-based year-long program to immerse yourself in unpacking the precepts. And so today we will we'll talk about that <clears throat> and how that's going to go. And uh, our outline for this year, sharing together, <clears throat> and where we go from here. So just to begin, let me introduce myself. My name is Todd Bankler. Um, I'm what they are calling one of the entrusted teachers here at Appamata. So we have two senior teachers, Peg and Flint. Um, Peg having Dharma transmission and Suzuki Roshi's lineage, uh, but originally being taught by Joko Beck. Uh, and Flint also studying and ordained in Suzuki Roshi's lineage as well. And then there have been um, three entrusted teachers who've kind of come up um, by practicing in Appamata, myself, Joel Barna and Lori Winnette, who will likely be participating at some point. So I've been practicing with Appamata since about 2009, so coming up on about uh, 11 or 12 years. And uh, before that, I kind of had a present moment awareness practice that uh, went round and round in circles for four or five years before I found Zen practice and Zen study to help direct it. Uh, that's enough about me. <clears throat> so in the typical class format, we will start each class period by doing uh, 15 minutes of sitting together. Hey, it is Zen practice, by the way, so of course we're going to sit together. Then we will usually do 10 minutes of free writing, so please bring pen and paper with you. Uh, and the free writing is just uh, another way to help us digest this information that we're taking in. So it gets kind of gets it into a different part of the brain, so we'll, we'll write continuously and, and uh, use it to kind of process uh, what you've been observing in the last month and that, there'll be a prompt for that each time so nothing you need to uh, think ahead about <clears throat> hello and joan you'll need to go on mute if you're thank you all right so um, since this is the time in the program where we would start handing out a bunch of things, but we don't have handouts. So instead, I've just emailed you a link to uh, a web page that we're setting up specifically for this precepts program for the year long study together. And I'll put it here in the chat window as well. <clears throat> And while we're doing that, let's see, we'll be technologically savvy and I can um, share my screen. So let's see. Yes, it is letting me. 
Okay. So, great. Oh, and interesting. It doesn't show the chats or the other stuff. That's neat. All right. So we have the um, Precepts Program 2021 webpage. So when I say, you know, refer to a handout, uh, the handouts will be down here on the left-hand side. Right? And there's, other, there's also some other resources that we'll post more as we go through for additional learning, maybe not things that we cover in the class but that you might find for, um, if you wanna delve deeper into any of the topics. Okay. So with that, we are going to start <clears throat> by doing a bit of reading. Uh, as a way of introducing the precepts. So, First, I'd like to just start by asking you, the participants, you know, what do you think the precepts are? Does anyone have, you know, an idea of that? Uh, some experience in the past or maybe some notions or, uh, I just love to hear kind of what you're bringing into it. Why are you here and, and uh, what do you think the precepts are? How do you view them? And we'll just go in popcorn order. Anyone who can speak up, who feels so moved, just remember to unmute yourself. So I'll go first. Um, I just finished the uh, six-week class with Peg Cyberson on what causes suffering. And I found it really fascinated and wanted to learn more about Buddhism. So I have no idea what the precepts are, but that's just kind of where where I'm coming from and um, what I know so far. Great, thank you. Well, I, I read the first part of uh, Diane Rosetta's book, the part that I could get as a Kindle sample before my book actually arrives. Um, and so the thing that struck me about what she said was that the precepts are not uh, thou shalt not. They're more in encouragements to um, live in an examined fashion. She didn't say that exactly, but I, I think that's what she was communicating. Yes, thank you. I'll go next. Um, and I am, I, I feel like I'm a real beginner here, but. Um, Good, we need real beginners. Um, I, I sort of, uh, my understanding of the precepts thus far is they are, um, there are really um, an approach to bring um, practice into your actual lived experience uh, in the day-to-day, -day, uh, just the day-to-day -day order of things. Thank you. And so glad to have, uh, beginners here, right? We really want that perspective. As a matter of fact, Zen practice is about trying to keep that beginner's perspective even after you think you know something. So it's good. I can go. Um, this is Mary Beth and 
I uh, I took the precepts in 2013 and I am back to take them again. And I consider myself a beginner. So always. <laughs> and what I remember from learning about the precepts before and what I've tried to do with my life um, since learning about the precepts is uh, there are my aspirations, the, the um, how I aspire to live my life. Very well said, thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, then. <clears throat> Uh, if no one else has anything, then we are going to move on. I apologize for me not looking at the camera and, and doing multiple laptops. This is a, a new interesting challenge of being in the Zendo in this way. <clears throat> okay. All right, so we're going to get into, by way of the introduction of the precepts, um, a little reading about the precepts in various forms. So this is a handout that Peg's used in the past that where she's assembled together kind of different ways of interpreting the precepts done by different teachers. And the handout, it says it's on the website, it says precepts, various forms. I'll display it here momentarily. Um, desktop, share, and now we got to figure out how to get, I'm also not a Mac user, so it makes it an extra challenge for me. It's there, there. So precepts, various forms. And what I'd like to do is, if this isn't too cumbersome, let's go around the virtual room and uh, read a paragraph at a time. Right? So we'll take, I won't put you on the spot, we'll, we'll take volunteers. Would someone like to read the first paragraph? I can read it. All right. Uh, okay. Pali Canon, Five Precepts as Gifts, Angatara Nikaya, 839-4245-47. Yeah, you can skip that. Thank you. <laughs> there are, O oh monks, eight streams of merit, streams of the wholesome, nourishments of happiness that are heavenly, ripening in happiness conducive to heaven, and that lead to whatever is wished for, loved and agreeable to one's welfare and happiness. What are the eight? Who can continue for us? Uh, I can go. Here, monks, a noble disciple has gone for refuge to the Buddha. 
This is the first stream of merit, stream of the wholesome, nourishment of happiness that is heavenly, ripening in happiness, conducive to heaven, and that leads to whatever is wished for, loved and agreeable to one's welfare and happiness. Another volunteer? I can go further. A noble dis disciple has gone for refuge to the, to the Dhamma. This is the second stream of merit that leads to whatever is wishful, love and agreeable to one's welfare and happiness. Further, a noble disciple has gone for refuge to the Sangha. This is the third stream of merit that leads to whatever is wished for, loved and agreeable to one's welfare and happiness. So I'm just going to pause there for a minute and <clears throat> introduce that uh, this is from the Pali Canon, which is the kind of the oldest written record of the Buddhist teachings. And um, what they've just gone through is uh, in the in the Zen tradition, we, we refer to the 16 Bodhisattva precepts in various traditions, there'll be different numbers. But these are kind of the, the three introductory treasures, the triple treasures in Zen, which is uh, taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma, and taking refuge in the Sangha. So it was um, a little bit hidden in the language there, but in these eight streams of merit, you know, a noble disciple has gone for refuge to Buddha, he's gone for refuge to the Dharma, and refuge in the Sangha. So continuing, who would like to continue? So, there are further monks with five gifts, pristine of long standing, traditional, ancient, unadulterated, and never before adulterated, that are not being adulterated and that will not be adulterated, not despised by wise ascetics and bombings. What are these five gifts? Here, monks, a noble disciple gives up the destruction of life and abstains from it. By abstaining from the destruction of life, the noble disciple gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. By giving to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression, he himself will enjoy immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. This is the first of those great gifts and the fourth stream of merit. I'll read next. Further, monks, a noble disciple gives up the taking of what is not given and abstains from it. By abstaining from taking what is not given, the noble disciple gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. By giving to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression, he himself will enjoy immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. This is the second of those great gifts and the fifth stream of merit.
I'll read. Further monks, a noble discipline disciple gives up sexual misconduct and abstains from it. By abstaining from sexual misconduct, the noble disciple gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. By giving to immeasurable beings, oh, by giving to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression, he himself will enjoy immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. This is the third of those great gifts and the sixth stream of merit. I can go, I can read. Uh, further monks, a noble disciple gives up false speech and abstains from it. By abstaining from false speech, the noble disciple gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. By giving to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression, he himself will enjoy immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. This is the fourth of those great gifts and the seventh stream of merit. I'll go next. Further monks, a noble disciple gives up wines, liquors, and intoxicants, the basis for negligence, and abstains from them. By abstaining from wines, liquors, and intoxicants, the noble disciple gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. By giving to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression, he himself will enjoy immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. This is the fifth of those great gifts and the eighth stream of merit. These monks are the eight streams of merit, streams of the wholesome nourishments of happiness, which are heavenly, ripening in happiness, conducive to heaven, and which lead to whatever is wished for, loved, and agreeable to one's welfare and happiness. Thank you. That worked out better than I thought it would. It's so nice to hear everyone's voices and to be able to virtually pass something around and read together. So you might have noticed, uh, not once did they say, thou shalt not. I think we're all uh, so used to um, experiencing the precepts through kind of the Judeo-Christian um, Ten Commandments, right? That they have similar uh, things they talk about, about not stealing and not killing. But one of the reasons that we like to bring this uh, to the class is that it really characterizes the precepts in a different way. It introduces them as gifts, right? It's a gift that you can receive. Um, it's a gift that you can give to those around you. Right? They talk about what you enjoy from observing the precepts, what you enjoy by not violating the precepts, right? So um, by abstaining, exact, for example, from the destruction of life, 
the noble disciple gives to immeasurable beings freedom. Freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. And by giving to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression, he himself will enjoy immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. Right? So this is a gift, a gift that we can receive that's always available to us. So you, at any time, you could give those around you the gift of freedom from your own anger, right? If you're angry, you could give them the gift of freedom from that. Uh, it's not about you not being angry, but it's just the concept of the precepts as gifts. This is why we often talk about receiving the precepts. And we'll talk a little bit in a moment about uh, uh, Jukai ceremony or the, the precept ceremony, we call it here in plain English. In the Japanese tradition, it's Jukai or lay ordination. Um, but that's a, a very formal ceremony, which, which is voluntary for those that wish to at the end of this year-long course, to formally receive those precepts as gifts. If you're wanting to take those on to to try and act out a life that's in accord with them. Right, so they're they're a gift that we can receive. They are not thou shall nots. Uh, and it's an important way to distinguish it, because this is the attitude that we want to bring to them as we enter into this process. So this is a description of what a disciple of the Buddha does. It's a description of what the disciple of the Buddha does not do. Um, if you aren't observing the precepts in a particular moment, then in that particular moment, you're not a disciple of the Buddha. You're not acting as a disciple of the Buddha. Oh, it looks like Lisa has joined us. She said she would be a little late. Um, sorry, did I did I hit the right button? Is Lisa in with us? Hi. <laughs> yes, I'm here. Okay, great. I thought I'd hit cancel and not admit. Thank you for joining. Glad you could make it. So we're just going through um, the precepts as gifts. We just read a, a little introductory statement and in your email um, or in the chat window here you should have a link to a web page where you'll find this information so continuing we were just saying you know if in that moment you are not in accord with the precepts um, you'll notice there's no there's no moral valence here there's no judgment it doesn't say a person who lies is bad, right? Character flaw, you're in trouble. Um, if in the moment that you're lying, then you are not a disciple of the Buddha. You're not walking that path, right? This is a description of the path. <clears throat> it was also helpful um, for the Buddha to, to make sure his, his followers and his Sangha um, were known as being adherents of the precepts, right? 
that it allowed you know his his sangha that was living on and you know in and around other communities to be trusted so in this handout we won't go through the rest of it we did we did the round the room reading of the beginning you'll see as i just i'll just show it to you a little bit there are uh, a traditional way of describing the precepts in traditional Buddhist terms. There's also Diane Rossetto's way, and, and we'll talk about this as we get into the book. She states them in a kind of positive affirmation instead of a negative that does not kill, right? She, she says, I take up the way of uh, supporting all life, or I take up the way of speaking truthfully. Right, so it's a very different uh, way of positioning them. And then from the Brahmanet Sutra or Mahayana Sutra, um, there's a little more of a expounded version that you, I'll let you go through on your own. And then there's also a version by Norman Fisher, who's a very uh, famous uh, Zen teacher here in the United States. He does some excellent writing, as many books recommend. And then you'll see, you'll see the term grave and you'll see the term treasure and we'll speak about that just for a moment. Okay. So let's, I'll stop the share for a moment there. So the, in our Soto Zen tradition, we as I said before, we uh, generally recognize 16 bodhisattva precepts, and those are broken into three categories. We have the, the, the three treasures, or the three refuges, or the triple treasure, and this is taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha. And then there's the three pure precepts, um, which are also known as kind of the root precepts that are kind of the, the ground at which all the others rest, which is not creating evil, practicing good, and actualizing good for others. So similar to the Bodhisattva vow, right, to save all beings. And then the last are the 10 grave precepts, and that's the ones that, um, you know, we could probably name most of, um, not to kill, not to steal, not to misuse sexuality, All right, so that is the introduction to the precepts, and now we'll talk a bit about how we're going to approach them here. Todd, I'm sorry, Todd, before we leave that, you were talking about the 16 precepts and the way they're divided. Which version are you looking at, Norman Fisher's? Um, no, I'm just talking about in general how oh, they're all right. broken down. I, okay. I, on that particular handout, I don't think they're really broken up that way. Okay. They're, they talk about the 10 grave precepts and uh, in the beginning, you know, the first three paragraphs we, we read were the triple treasure of taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, but each teacher in each format has a, has a unique way of presenting them often. Okay. 
So um, our method here is to basically live our way into this exploration of the precepts over the course of a year. Um, Peg likes to talk about how when she was being ordained and she was um, in a monastic practice in, in the Pacific Northwest um, with her teacher, she was given an instruction. Well, go study the precepts, you know, write, write something about it, bring it to me, and then, you know, we'll go through the, uh, the, the ceremonial process. And um, she talks about how that was not very satisfying for her, right? Like an individual study program that seemed very academic um, wasn't as fruitful, right? And here we believe much more in experiential practice and something that's relational. So this is why the precepts program has been adopted this way here. Right? so we have 12 months and that leaves, you know, uh, a month of time in between the taking up of each precept. We'll group a few of them together. If, if those of you are doing the math and, and about the time I can't do math, don't, don't worry, it'll work out. <clears throat> but generally, we'll have about a month of time to steep in it, right? Spending a month thinking about not lying, right, or taking up the way of speaking truthfully is an amazing way for you to uncover all the ways you tell little lies all throughout the day, right? Uh, and not to say that there's anything wrong with you, right? This is, this is how we are, um, myself included, of course. <clears throat> but it's not academic. It's, it's kind of, it's in here like, oh, I just exaggerated that. You know, why, why did I even do that? I didn't even think I wanted to impress that person, right? But yet the little, the little light goes off and you realize, oh, you know, there's something going on here. And so we're gonna give you tools to try and unpack that. And when we get back together, um, you know, we'll, we'll have time for writing and reflection and observation. And right, so that's really not academic at all. It's really experiential. So the precepts program is is not a class it's your life it's your life with a focus so we're going to give to you every month a focus area to try and take it deeper and let's see with that I will just show you for a moment. Let's see. Just testing all my technology skills. So one of the links on the website that you were sent was the precepts program plan for the year. Now, one thing I can probably guarantee you is that this will change. <laughs> As a matter of fact, in our first class today, we were going through an introduction and then we we're going to talk about Hakomi, which is a, a assisted self-study and mindfulness. It's a, it's a, a psychotherapy modality that uh, we kind of use bits and pieces of here. But um, depending on time, I may want to leave that uh, to the next gathering where hopefully you know, some people will be in person and doing the little exercises will be a little easier to navigate. 
And then, in the, and then to, later today, we'll talk about the learning record, which is a way we're gonna keep track of our progress as we go. Next time, um, and you can see off to the right, there'll be a reading before the class. Uh, I've noticed I've, I've put in the, the key core book that we're gonna be using, which is uh, Diane Rosetto's Waking Up to What You Do. Is that backwards? I can't tell. Um, but that's on the website, you should have access to that. So there's readings there before each class. So for before the next class, you're gonna be asked to read the first five chapters of the Rosetto book. It's very accessible reading. Um, it's not uh, very academic. It's a kind of a lighthearted, easy read. So those, those five chapters are, they'll go by pretty quickly. So don't be concerned. Um, I will add some other suggested readings from the uh, Six Perfections book, the Dale Wright book here, which I, I do not have in this, in this outline yet, but I'll get that to you. So in the second month, we'll go through internal family systems, which is another kind of psychotherapeutic modality that helps people work with the things that they notice arising. So just to warn you, you know, the, this um, program has a way of bringing to light kind of all the ways we are in the world, right? And some of them can be a little um, disconcerting for us when we start to realize kind of some of the ways that perhaps we're behaving subtly. And so um, things like Hakomi and IFS or internal family systems just help us figure out, you know, what to do with those things and how to work with them. So uh, this is definitely not psychotherapy, um, but they're just, we're trying to give you some tools for your toolkit. And then we'll start with the first precept um, in the Rosetto book. She, she does it in a different order, which I think makes sense. And one of the reasons we like the book but speaking truthfully. I won't go through all of these, but you can see kind of the flow here of the year. Um, so we'll go through one main precepts a month. So speaking of others with openness and possibility, then usually we'll also have kind of some, uh, an extra topic, whether it's the Hakomi or IFS, or we'll talk about uh, the sewing practice one time. Um, we'll also talk about right use of power. We won't have class in December. I will warn you, the, the, um, the November class is the same week as Thanksgiving on that Tuesday, so that could be a little bit of a problem for some people. But in case you do miss any class, these are recorded and they will be on the same Precepts Program webpage. The recordings will be there along with all the other handouts. And then at the end of the class, I think I already mentioned, their ceremony will be available. We'll talk a little bit more about that as it gets closer. And that, that of course is optional. So our approach here at Appamata is that Zen is a relational practice that really, you know, every encounter we have, whether it's with others or a plant or an un, you know, a sensation we're having is really a relationship. It's a meeting. It's a meeting between ourselves and others or um, our perspective our, of our own mind and our own thought. But the Zen is always fundamentally relational. 
in the precepts um, are an inquiry into the quality of relating, right? What is the quality of that relating that's happening in that moment? Really, the precepts, they, you know, they wouldn't make any sense if it was just you, if you were the only person on the planet, you know, if there was no interaction with another, they'd have a very different understanding or different meaning, if at all. So it's really about the quality of relating. The Buddha's objective was not for individuals to become enlightened, although that was part of it. But he was working on how to bring into existence a sane and happy civilization, right? And that always involves relationships. He was interested in giving people the tools they need to live a happy life and be relieved from suffering. He wanted to give them a quality of relating that was free from hatred, ignorance, and anger. This is what he taught. And the Buddha taught the precepts his entire life. He, he taught it uh, everywhere he went. He taught the precepts to kings and to commoners. It was an offering he made to, to help people create relationships and live harmoniously together. So we're going to take these precepts in. We're going to learn how to relate to them, with them, and then extend those out to our relationships with every thing we meet, person we meet. So we're going to, we need to get intimate with them. We need to have the beginner's mind that we were talking about, Allison, right? an inquiring mind, one that doesn't think that we know, one that's open and curious about what we might discover, what might actually happen. As part of the process, we're going to use some writing to help deepen our understanding. I mentioned the free writing we'll do at the beginning of each class. <clears throat> and we'll also, as we get into the learning record, there'll be uh, opportunity for, for writing as well. So we're going to do this exploration together over the year as a group, learning how to wrestle with it and unpack it in our lives. Um, and not just when you pick up a Buddhist book, right? it's going to come up at your work with your boss, with your family and your friends, right? In each, in each of these relationships, There'll be little moments of discovery. So keep that inquiring mind with you as we go. And you're going to learn how you're experiencing what you're practicing. So with that, I want to encourage you that this is a marathon, not a sprint. Right? This is why we're taking it slowly together. Right? This is not about you um, finding you know, 
better judgments to make against yourself or having more ammunition to judge yourself as better than or less than other people. As we said, the precepts do not have a moral valence on them. They're not, this is good and this is bad. It's not that kind of thing. Um, Peg likes to say they're more like laws of physics, right? They describe what happens, like dropping a ball. And one example she used uh, of uh, precepts exploration is like the little toddler that, that takes the toy or the ball and drops it off the high chair. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and the parents busy doing so oh, they dropped it again picks it back up sets it down what does the toddler do drops it looks over the chair again oh it hit the ground again same thing happened you know <clears throat> so our work with the precepts kind of like that right as we take up the way of speaking truthfully and we notice we exaggerate a little bit at work right right we drop the ball oh and then we get some feedback how did that feel why did I do that? Hmm. We act and then we get some evidence. We see the ripple it has in our world. In order for this to really be fruitful for you, I want to encourage you if you don't already have a daily zazen practice, please, you know, find a way to, to uh, bring your zazen practice to a daily routine, right? This is going to help create the stillness and space that's going to allow for the mindfulness that's necessary in order to conduct this exploration. It's also going to provide you uh, the time for things to digest each day, right? So if you're, if you're struggling with a daily zazen practice or um, you, you know, are only doing a little bit of a time, we suggest you know, to try and work up to 30 minutes. Just do what you can, even if it's only you know, for four minutes or six minutes or eight minutes a day. Find, make space for yourself for that nourishment, for that time of stillness and silence. And then just add one minute a week, right? So if, you, if you're able to start with six minutes this week, then do six minutes. Don't bring judging mind to, oh, I should be doing more. Just do your six minutes and next week do seven, right? And slowly work yourself up. You'll find this very supportive for your, your life in general and for um, an exploration like this precepts program. We really need to open a space where these questions can move and they can get into our bodies. It kind of, they'll, they'll, uh, they kind of float down. They come out of our heads and they get into the rest of our nervous systems and into the body. All right, so I've said a lot. I'm going to pause for a moment and see if there's any questions or anything that feels like it needs to be said or any reflections before I move on. Okay, and we shall move on.
So our companion book for this year is uh, Dale Wright's The Six Perfections. It's on the, on the website page as well. This one we'll use more as a supplemental text. So the, the Diane Rossetto book is the, the primary text, and that really gives the uh, outline of the way of working with the precepts, and we're going to follow that pretty closely. But this one um, provides kind of a, a different way of looking at uh, the practices, the six perfections or six paramitas. as a way to work with the precepts. <clears throat> and the subtitle is Buddhism and the Cultivation of Character. So I'm going to just give you a little excerpt from the introduction here. The question my life presses upon me whether I face it directly or not, is how shall I live? As what kind of person? All of us face the task of constructing lives for ourselves, of shaping ourselves into certain kinds of people who will live lives of one kind or another, for better or worse. Some people undertake this task deliberately they make choices in life. Excuse me. They make choices in life in view of an image of the kind of person they would hope to become. From the early beginnings of their tradition, Buddhists have maintained that nothing is more important than the developing the freedom implied in their activity of self-cultivation, of deliberately shaping the kind of life you will live. And although circumstances beyond anyone's control will make very different possibilities available for very different people, Buddhists have always recognized that the differences between those who assume the task of self-sculpting with imagination, integrity, and courage, and those who do not is enormous. And this constitutes in Buddhism the difference between enlightened ways of being in the world and unenlightened ways. At the center of this long-standing Buddhist practice has been a list of, quote, perfections. Understood as particular ideals of human character that guide self-cultivation. The perfections provide a concrete image of the human qualities that Buddhists consider truly admirable. <clears throat> One sutra introduces the six perfections by having a disciple ask the Buddha, how many bases for training are there for those seeking enlightenment? The Buddha responds, there are six, generosity, morality, tolerance, energy, 
meditation, and wisdom. So the question he asked, or that was answered, was basically, I'm paraphrasing, how many ways of training are there for those seeking enlightenment, right? He wasn't, the other question was, how, wasn't how should I ask? How do you train for enlightenment? There are six, generosity, morality, tolerance, energy, meditation, and wisdom. This sutra claims that the six perfections are bases for training. This means that they constitute a series of practices or trainings that guide Buddhist practitioners toward the goal of enlightenment or awakening. These six trainings are the means or methods to that all-important end. But the perfections are much more than techniques. They're also the most fundamental dimensions of the goal of enlightenment. Enlightenment is defined in terms of these six qualities of human character. Together, they constitute the essential qualities of that ideal human state. The perfections, therefore, are the ideal, not just the means to it. Being generous, morally aware, tolerant, energetic, meditative, and wise is what it means for a Buddhist to be enlightened. If perfection in these six dimensions of human character is the goal, then enlightenment understood in this Buddhist sense would also be closely correlated to these particular practices. Recognizing this, one sutra says, enlightenment just is the path, and the path is enlightenment. To be moving along the path of self-cultivation by developing the six perfections is the very meaning of enlightenment. Right, so that's a different way of looking at it, right? These are not six things that you do in order to get somewhere. The doing them is the somewhere. If you were to describe what is an enlightened person, you could take it the other way. It is someone who does these six things. Cause and effect are one, we often say. So we'll be using bits and pieces of the six perfections to help inform us, right, to help um, to give us these the scaffolding of these practices that help us on our path. <clears throat> Time check. Eight o'clock. I know our agenda said two hours. I think that was a little bit uh, uh, 
more time than we'll probably use. Uh, in my experience, most of the time, these these uh, our meetings will probably last closer to 90 minutes. But I, I put two hours on the calendar just, just to be sure in case we run a little long. But so we're more than halfway there. If you need to stand up and stretch your legs, feel free to do so. Odd? Yes. Uh, I own, I was taking some notes. Can you, I, I only got five of the six perfections. Oh, you're, got, you're damned now. You're never <laughs> uh, So we, let's see, where does he have them here? Generosity, uh -huh. morality, tolerance, energy, meditation, and wisdom. Oh, I forgot meditation. Don't forget meditation. <clears throat> All right, so moving on. I want to talk a little bit about um, one of the, the writing practices that we use uh, to chart our year together, to chart our progress along the path. So uh, a long time ago, Peg was involved in a um, uh, academic research program in California, I think as part of her graduate studies, where they were interested, teachers were interested in coming up with an alternative way to chart students' progress. And this was specifically for um, English as a second language learners progress in California that could replace uh, a standardized test for someone who was not a native English speaker, speaker and therefore you know, was at a, a disadvantage and standardized test scores were, were often unreliable or skewed. And so they came up with a way of um, um, making observations and documenting learning in a different way. Um, it, was, it was very successful. It was originally done for, I believe, for elementary school age children. And then when Peg came to the University of Texas, uh, she was involved in a long project to create an adult version of it um, for use in her graduate studies. And so we've been using this learning record here for the last, I think this is the 10th or 11th year we've done the precepts program. I think I, I think I participated in it maybe in about 2010, and then began co-teaching the class in, in 2017. And um, it's really it's a it's a lovely way to document um, changes over time. So here we go. Find my notes. <clears throat> So, and this is especially helpful for learning things that are, are kind of have an undetermined outcome. So a Zen practice is perfect, right? So, you know, if I were to ask you, okay, at the end of this year, what are you gonna know, right? You could, you could probably have many ideas about that or many guesses, but it would, it would probably be hard to predict what you're gonna learn, right? It's, this is not like, well, I'm gonna learn trigonometry. At the end of the year, I'm not going to know trigonometry. At the end of the year, I'm probably going to be changed. Now, how is that? Well, it's a little hard to determine. So for subjects like this, 
it's better to have something that's a little more free form. So the learning record is basically, it's, it's analogous to, to a scientific principle where you have uh, you know, an observer that starts by assessing a particular system or state at the beginning point, and then makes um, detailed observations over time, snapshots in time. And then there are those, uh, uh, be a time in the midpoint for kind of assessing how we're doing. And then some analysis of what you've observed over time, all the while continuing these little observations that are done in mindfulness over time. <clears throat> so there's no real milestones in our Zen practice and our work with the precepts where we say, okay, you know, pass the test on precept two. Right? So this gives us something to look back on and something to to mark our milestones, much in the same way that you would, you know, take your young child and put them up against the door frame and put a little mark, right? They were here, right? When you come back and look later, like, oh, there's been a change, right? So this is how we're gonna see the change. It's an empirical approach based on observations, very detailed present moment observations done in mindfulness. So learning is really change over time. So I'm going to pass out the handouts virtually, which means once again, going to the website and um, go back. And so here we have, we have the learning record. So there's a, in a PDF version and a Word document version for you, Microsoft people, if you like. All right, this is, this is really geared and kind of set up as uh, to be printed out, right? We are gonna do writings and observations. There's forms to fill out. You're welcome to do it you know, digitally if, if you like that, but it's, it's laid out here, designed to be printed out and, and put in a three-reading three binder or so. And we'll just give you a little orientation as to what the sections are and how we're going to be going about this. Um, Lisa, okay, so Lisa had a question. Where did I go to the website? So Lisa, let's see here. There was, oh, thank you, Mary Beth. She just put the link in there for you. Yeah, this page is, you will not find it in the menu system, the website, it's kind of hidden. So you have to know what the link is. So um, after we leave the class and you forget where it is, I sent you an email about an hour ago to everyone who's registered. So you should have that link in your email. Of course, feel free to just contact me if you get lost. No, I'm going to use the learning record IRL, as kids say, in real life. All right. So there's the suggestions, you know, that you can print this out. Um, there are several different parts. There's a part A1 and A2 and a mid-year, a part B1, C1. Right. So. 
And the heart of this course is um, these observations we're going to do. And the first question you have is, well, what am I going to observe? In the beginning, uh, it can be anything. Right? We're going to observe what's happening in our present moment. We're going to observe our experience with it. And then you could start by just, if you're sitting at the bus stop one day, you know, observing the traffic flow, right? Or anything that you encounter in your life. And then as you've done a few and get familiar with the process, we're going to begin to, to turn that lens towards our working with the precepts, towards what we're noticing. Um, you know, what did I notice came up when, when I realized that I had just made a little exaggeration at work, right? So maybe not capture it then, but shortly thereafter on our lunch break, we can make a little observation. Okay, I noticed I was giving a report and I noticed I inflated what I did a little bit and here's how I felt and here's, you know, you're gonna observe just like a scientist. So much in the same way as if you were a biologist uh, observing um, a reforestation project, right? Over many years, you would start with an initial assessment. You would come in and you would do observations every so often of the flora or the fauna, you know, fauna or what's changed. So really, this is the kind of lens we're going to use. So part A1 and A2, these are done at the beginning of the course. <clears throat> So let me get to those. So, A1, reflections on my own development. So this is where we begin. Take some time to reflect on your own development as a human being up to this point. Focus on positive indicators, capacities, and developments rather than what you consider your deficits or difficulties or shortcomings. Include any reflections that might specifically relate to the subject of this particular learning experience. Class, workshop, in this case, this is, you know, the precepts program learning experience. So this is just documenting where we are when we start, right? This is our beginning snapshot, right? So you would, um, you would not just reflect on your own development, but reflect on your own development as it relates to the precepts, right? Do you have some particular history in studying this or observing this? Is it all new for you? Maybe you're one of the people who's repeating the course. We have, we have a lot of people who like to repeat the course, uh, come back over time. And then A2, this is aspirations for development. For A2, little instruction, a very big box, plenty of room to fill out. So take some time to become mindful of your purposes for entering into this learning experience. What are your aspirations for your own learning? What might help or hinder you in realizing your aspirations? What will you need to keep in mind in support of your own learning? How will you monitor or evaluate the learning process in terms of your unfolding aspirations? What relationships will affect the work? So A1 and A2, those are how we begin and where we begin. And what we bring in and what we aspire to. You know, pretty self-explanatory, I hope. Any, any questions about that?
<clears throat> All right, so mindful observations. This is really the, the heart of the practice. So um, part B1 and C1, uh, we probably don't need to, to talk about today, but they're basically kind of in the midway through the course. That's a, an opportunity to look back over your observations and take stock, review the observations you've done so far, maybe do a little interpreting, um, seeing what patterns you see yourself repeating or talking about over. But the mindful observations are really uh, the heart of this. So let's see, you should have, I don't know where it is in the soft copy. There we go. Let's just let's do it this way. I'm, I just realized I'm I'm holding up sheets of paper and showing them to you in the camera when I've got this right here on the screen. Okay, that's the interim analysis. Interim final final um, comments by readers. So this is designed to be personal and confidential. I'll say that you're not turning these in. Uh, you don't have to share them with me. Um, you don't have to share them with anyone. Uh, if you do wish to share them with a trusted advisor or a spiritual friend or significant other, then this is what that, this page is for. Any comments or reflections from an outsider? Okay. So here is the mindful observation. I believe this one is, this is kind of the instruction sheet. And then here, this is what the blank sheet looks like. Let's see, can we make that a little bit smaller? There we go. So there's a form, sensation, perception, thought and emotion, consciousness, relationality, and then a space for future use for reflections or questions. And then, so this form, you would, you know, if you're gonna do this by hand, you would print out as many copies as you would need. So, you know, if you're gonna do about uh, one a week throughout the year, which is basically what we suggest, then you need 50 copies. So you're going to create quite a little um, document, right, or artifact of your change over time as you work with the precepts. So it it's, can be very interesting. So going back to how we do an observation. So guidelines and examples for mindful observations. <clears throat> so the first thing is just a note that while there are six boxes, form, sensation, perception, thoughts, emotion, consciousness, and relationality, you do not have to fill these out for every one. Part of what you'll learn is what your tendency is. You may be somebody who, when you go to document something, is always very aware of the thought or the emotion or how it felt, right? But maybe you're not, um, don't have a lot of uh, awareness of your own state of consciousness or awareness of your own um, forms or physical sensations, right? And so if you don't fill out all of them, you know, one of the observations you might make in the mid-year is like, oh, I'm really something, really kind of person that, that always talks about my sensations. 
and I never talk about my thoughts about it. Right? So that's, that's more data for you. So we don't have to fill everything out, that's fine. Just put down what you actually noticed. And the key here is to be brief. Use one to three sentences for each note. And there's a place to put the date on there. <clears throat> and so these are, these are fact-based observations, right? This is not the part of the program where you try to be an analyst about what you think happened, right? Or we don't want you to put your judge's robe on and proclaim yourself guilty and bad or, you know, holier than everyone else and good, right? They're really just going to be basic factual observations. And Peg likes to tell the story about um, how one of the teachers uh, who was working with the child said, well, the only thing I can, can observe about him is he can't read. <laughs> well, and Peg likes to say, you can't observe that. That's not the fact-based observation we're doing. You can't observe that someone can't read. What actually happens when you give him a reading assignment? You say, well, he can't read, so he just doesn't do anything. You're like, but that's not what you're observing, right? What happens? She said, oh, well, he'll usually kick the chair in front of him a lot, you know, like he's agitated and rock, and then usually he'll scribble for a while, then he always crumples it up and throws it away. Like, ah, an observation, right? So write down, um, you know, restlessness, moving and kicking in the chair, um, scribbling but not letters, right? Uh, discarding his work and not showing it to anyone, right? That's the type of observation we want. The other thing that the, the teacher was bringing, this is a child who can't read, right? That was more of an analysis of what they thought was happening. Right? So this is just a little example of the kinds of observations we would bring. So for form, what was the physical, physical aspect of what you observed? Stick with what might be observed in terms of physical forms and their interactions. Example, my car hit a light pole. My dog was lying in the sun. My friend arrived late and breathless, right? So those are just physical forms of what you actually observed. Not that my friend was irresponsible and showed up 15 minutes late like she always does, right? <laughs> And then there are the sensations. Oh, and I should say this, you know, the process and how this is broken out is really like trying to bring a more fine-tuned microscope, right? To bring different lenses to these observations, different ways or different categories of how um, the event unfolded, right? And bringing these different lenses kind of refines our ability to tune in to what we're observing and what's happening. So that's why it's done in this way. So the second one is sensations. What, if any, sensations did you observe? This is a very immediate, basic reaction. Um, and there's really, there's really only three. In this category of sensations, the way they're described here, there's really uh, attraction, like wanting, grasping, you want that, aversion, opposite, don't want, go away, don't like, you know, or neutral, like 
couldn't care less, didn't even notice if I cared or couldn't care, or couldn't be bothered, right? So attraction, aversion, or neutral. I was drawn away, I was drawn toward it, I shrank away. I had no reaction. The next box is perceptions. What sensory perceptions did you observe? Uh, the car fender folded like origami. My eye was caught by a flight of herons. I heard a mockingbird outside the window. It felt smooth, right? Feelings, hearing, seeing. The next are thoughts and emotions. What thoughts or emotions did you observe? Suddenly, I felt afraid to open the door. Uh, he shouldn't have left them here. I had the thought of that I'm always so confused. Or she's never coming back. Now, consciousness. This is more of the kind of the background level of consciousness. If you can bring any awareness to that as you're making the observation of what happened. What did you notice about the underlying quality of the consciousness? It, were you agitated or calm, swift or slow moving, dark or angry or happy, expansive or narrow, muddled or clear, right? So often we bring to things this, excuse me, I need to scroll, sorry. Getting lost between the virtual paper and the real, real paper. <clears throat> So this is our kind of background state of consciousness, kind of what was, what was the, the C state as things, when, when whatever we're observing was happening, were things flat, calm and peaceful? Were they raging? Were you still stirred up from some past event? You know, um, often, you know, we, we all maybe know someone whose who's background state of consciousness is maybe you know, always agitated or angry. Not that that's any of us, of course, right? But who's just looking for someone to lash out at, right? So that's kind of that background state of consciousness that was there before the triggering event, right? The examples, all of this was happening, but I was unconcerned about it, or I was jittering and on edge, or my general annoyance erupted into anger. Make sense? Background consciousness? Okay. And then the last one, which was not normally used in the learning record, but it's part of the, the relational aspect of our Zen practice here is the relationality of it. What was the relational quality of what you observed? Did you notice how your activity or interactions affected the connections in the situation? Did they reflect some degree of healthy or unhealthy attachment or attunement, right? Uh, for example, maybe if you were this involved another person and you realize you didn't even know how, notice how they reacted, right? Well, there's a bit of data. I was unaware of the relational aspect or not paying attention, right? Did the interaction and connectedness move relationship toward more freedom? compassion, curiosity, and intimacy. And then she gives examples. She looked as though I had slapped her. 
He calmed down and breathed a sigh when he heard what I said. We both started laughing. Does that make sense? Okay, a couple head nods. Any questions about the observations? So these, these practices, these observing practices, they're gonna help us hone our skills for observing, right? They're gonna give us, they're gonna exercise that observational muscle that, um, to make it a bit more second nature. And again, we ask that you try and do one a week. You know, if you wanna try and do more, um, of course, go for it. You can do as many as you want. Um, it's all just data. That you, you'll come back and look for later, look at later. And then lastly, you know, um, you may want to discuss uh, what you're observing with a teacher or a Zen mentor. You know, at any time, you can set up time with myself. Um, for practice discussion or any of the other teachers or any of the other Zen mentors here, all of them, I believe, have been through the precepts program and they're, they're happy to, to uh, work with you on this. Um, often the talking about it is very helpful, right, because we have a tendency to, just like when we, when we write or do free writing, our thoughts and reflections come out in a different way. When we're forced to try and communicate them to another, um, often they get unpacked in ways we didn't expect, and it can be very supportive. So that, that's available to you at any time. And I, I encourage that. Okay. So we've been through a lot so far. Take a deep breath. Questions, comments, reflections? And Todd, could you take us back to not the screen sharing, but a general thing so that we can see each other as well? Yes. Thank you. And Todd, I would like to offer um, something that was offered to me and I'm a visual learner. And I, when I got the learning record, um, I just want to share what I did because I was a little overwhelmed. And I went to Peg and she guided me to put this notebook together. If you can see that, let me turn off my video. You're blurry. Yeah, my virtual black background. Uh, I didn't make my bed. Oh, well. Um, so it's just a little notebook like this. And I've got like, I put the agenda, this is an old one, but, um, and then I put tabs in here and like one tab is, you know, all my observations and I actually printed up 50 for the year. Yeah. So Todd has one too. <laughs> yeah. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. And, um, I have one here for work samples, another tab for work samples and I filed them there. It was just a way to keep me organized. And I just wanted to share that. Hmm. Thank you. It's so great to hear from someone who's done it before. Um, 
as long as you're speaking, right? Is there anything you'd like to say about uh, besides how you organized it in a binder, what it was like, right? Did you did you learn more than maybe you were expecting? What was the way of what were your reflections on using the learning record and was it useful? It was useful um, when I used it. And, and actually before this class, I went back and looked at it. And uh, it's just amazing the things that have transpired in my life that I was saying in here that have actually developed since 2013. So it was, it, it, and I, I dug it up from a box in the garage. So it was just really interesting. It's, it, it feel felt daunting at the time I was doing it, but I'm so glad that I have it now. I learned a lot and I know I will learn a lot more this time too. Great, thank you for sharing. Can I ask Mary Beth, um, how often do you find yourself referring back to it? I, I haven't until now. Like it's been in the garage for years, <laughs> but um, when I was taking the precepts before I was using it actively. Okay. Todd, yeah. Nelda, I have a similar one <laughs> and I decided to pull mine out. I haven't looked at it yet, but as we go week to week, I'm going to compile or month to month with the lessons, everything from that month behind the very same month from the previous time, and then take some time to look at that transition, at that change. Um, I'm very excited about that possibility, actually. It sounds like an excellent idea. It's really a very useful way to take these snapshots and really, I think it's, you know, one of the only ways that we have where we can really see the change over time, where we can see how we've grown, right? Because if not, at the end of this year, you just kind of have this vague recollection of, yeah, I kind of remember being confused when I was coming in maybe, right? But um, it's hard to make any, any um, kind of concrete sense of it. So that's, that's the use of it. It's very useful. <clears throat> Joan, you're muted. You need to unmute yourself. Yeah, okay. This is an observation about me. Okay. And uh, it's pretty deep. You know, it's pretty firm observation. I'm 84 years old and I feel tired. And it makes me think, what am I going to do to get through this and uh, feel alive in it. Yeah, so you have some trepidation about uh, taking this on, it sounds like. like it, mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's what you're bringing to it. That's where you begin. Mm -hmm. I see nothing wrong with that. I don't see that as an issue that needs to be resolved. That's just like, oh, the wind's blowing out of the north today. Mm -hmm. Well, I look at it as a hindrance as to not how I know how I'm going to proceed. I don't know. Hmm. Well, that's just an observation for right now. Mm -hmm. yeah. Joan, I'd like to share with you 
my own hesitation in, in coming to it, which is that my health's unpredictable and pretty extreme sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so I was sort of like, oh, I won't be able to bring as much or get as much from it and so on. Like, and so what I really decided what I was doing here is I will be here as fully as I can at that time. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole, that's the whole of what I could bring. It's the whole of what any of us can bring. Yeah. And and so to not take that on as stress for myself, because that works against my health issues. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. A little compassion to ourselves as well. I'll just echo Becky. Um, I have, um, I have long standing issues with fatigue. I'm only in my sixties, but these started probably in my twenties. And so I have to do the same thing. Um, it, it's my way out of the shame or thinking of that there's something wrong with me for being tired has been to realize that this is, this is just how I am. Um, and to, to, to really do what Becky said, bring myself as fully as I can at that time. And that's not just at the class meetings, it's to every part of it. When I feel in this, in this course, when, when it comes to writing down one of these observations, it's going to be the same thing as fully as I can in that moment. Thank you. Well, this gives me some insight too. If I do it early in the day, I'll probably have more vitality. <laughs> Night times is not the best time to really function well. That's a learning thing too. Thank you anyway. Hope that was useful for somebody else too. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it was, thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, so time check, bodhisattvas. It's 8.30. Uh, the last topic that um, I was a little bit waffling about getting into was Hakomi. And I think, you know, I think what we'll do is maybe I'll spend just a couple minutes uh, saying a little something about it, but we'll save the, the meat of it um, for next class, um, where I think uh, we'll have, a, a, first we'll have a little more time. And then secondly, we might have some of you in the room here together and, we, and I'd like to do some one-on-one -on -one exercises, which we can do online for those who won't be in person, we'll do them virtually, but it'll, it'll be a little easier, at least for me personally to manage, I think. Also, we have some excellent um, Hakomi resources here in our uh, Zen Sangha. We have several people who are uh, have been gone through the um, year-long Hakomi training. We have some people that are um, practice this uh, therapeutic modality in their professional work. And, and I might just be able to rope one of them into being one of the guest teachers next week and, and uh, having someone a little more skilled to take you through it. So with that, uh, maybe I'll just give you a little taste of what it is and, and why we're gonna be talking about it. And then we'll wrap up a little early. <clears throat> Um, 
So Hakomi was developed by a guy named Ron Kurtz, who was a psychotherapist. And this is something that Flint uh, feels very strongly about and uh, has, has used it and taught about it. And uh, it's worked its way into some of the practices we do here at Appamata. So for some of you, I don't know all of you or how much uh, dealings you've had with, with uh, us here and the way we practice here at Appamata, but um, and this all started with Joko's approach to practice. She was really interested in a psychologically minded approach to practice. She was not a psychologist or psychotherapist, uh, not at all. She wasn't trained in that way, but she noticed how um, uh, Buddhist practice and Zen practice seem to um, what its limitations were while it, it could have uh, wonderful kind of transformational uh, effects for people to find some more ease and freedom in their life. Um, there's many things they couldn't do, right? And uh, there's people that, that often had other problems that they would kind of compartmentalize and ignore. So Choka was always very interested in, in um, how to prevent that from happening. And so her way of, of uh, turning towards everything that was happening in your life, using your life as practice, uh, uncovering your core beliefs. If any of you've read Joko's books, um, these should sound familiar. Her, her, her approach was, um, began to be noticed by many people in the healing professions and in therapeutic professions. And she attracted a lot of therapists. She had a lot of therapists as students. And we have the same kind of thing here. We have uh, Flint, who was a practicing psychotherapist, and, and I've lost count of how many Sangha members that I've met who are also therapists. So um, again, I'm just giving you a little bit of explanation of, uh, in case you're wondering, why are we talking about psychotherapy things, you know, in a Buddhist center? It's just because it turns out when you do a lot of self-reflection, when you do a lot of meditation, um, a lot of things come up that you didn't realize was there. And so we're giving tools for how to, how to work with them. And in particular, Hakomi is um, very congruent with Zen practice and with these mindful observations that we're going to be doing uh, for the learning record. So Hakomi has been, um, it is a body-centered psychotherapeutic approach. So body-centered, meaning it spends a lot of time um, paying attention to what's going on in the physical form, in you know, thoughts, feelings, perceptions, sensations, etc. It's also been uh, termed as assisted self-study in mindfulness. So it is a self-study in mindfulness, but with a framework that gives you assistance. And there's a, a long handout on the website. It's under under the handouts that I showed you before. I won't bring it up now because we're not going to read it through it all. But if you want to, um, to delve deeper in it, you can uh, use the handout. Flint says, you know, we use this to learn about how we organize our experience, but also how this organization is a reflection of our core beliefs and conditioning. 
The Hakomi method is uh, an elegant way, elegant, elegant and precise method of self-study. It's a form of mindful investigation. It's not only a gateway to the understanding of complex interdependent systems and the interdependent nature of our lives, but also the possibility of freedom from suffering, which is an important goal, right? Important goal in both psychotherapy and Buddhist practice, the relief of suffering. Through assisted self-study in the Hokomi method, we not only learn about how we organize experience, but also how this organization is a reflection of our core beliefs and conditioning. So I'm sure everybody's probably familiar with how we use the term conditioning here, but just our conditioned behavior, um, conditioned habitual reflexes to how we meet the world. So through Hokomi, we become aware of how these condition, how this conditioning and these beliefs shape our behaviors in our and our relationships in ways that might be limiting or painful. And we have the opportunity to begin to wake up. Um, and what we wake up to is the fact that we have all the raw material we, we need. We have everything we need to heal and to awaken spiritually. Each of us is a full expression of ultimate reality. There's nothing missing. Everything that goes into the formation of our body and mind is intimately and infinitely connected with everything else in the universe. And what this points to is that everything is a result of something else. Everything is a result of something else. Everything an event comes into being through a contingent web of causes and conditions. And this chain of association is without end. We can wake up to this fact, which is the basic realization that the Buddha had under the Bodhi tree. And we, like the Buddha, can come into a full appreciation of mutual causality through meditation practice. So the basic method of Hakomi is to create a healing relationship. Now, if you read the, the handouts, um, this is really written for uh, psychotherapy, you know, therapy clients and uh, practitioners, right? So the, the therapist and the client, right? So in our mode, uh, you get to play double duty. Most of the time, you're going to be both. This is the self-assisted study in mindfulness. So just pointing that out, when you hear client and therapist, take it with a grain of salt. So, but the basic mode is loving presence. So, and Ron talks about this as kind of the foundation that creates a space that can allow all this transformation to happen loving presence it's a special state of mind and way of being it's open-hearted 
well-intentioned. Um, it should feel pleasant and healthy and rewarding to the one who's trying to cultivate that loving presence. It's a big part of healthy relationships, right? Um, we definitely know how it feels when it's lacking when we're ignored or disrespected. Um, it would a reminder or remind us, it would remind us of someone who, who cares and has the time to listen, right? Someone who's not rushed, someone who's present and listening, who can really pay attention. And learning how to do that well is what this uh, Hakomi practice is all about. So inhabiting the state of loving presence. And when we go into the exercises, we'll talk about it a little bit more. And so with that as the ground, the method of Hakomi is to establish some mindfulness, right? Some internal um, awareness, reflection of what's going on in our world and in ourselves. It's self-observing. It's noticing one's own pre present experience. Um, it's available for what's happening now. So it's a useful state for our inquiry, right? So this is the kind of state, this is how we tie the two together. When we're doing our mindful observations, we're kind of using this Hakomi method of bringing a loving presence to whatever you might discover that might come up. This is kind of like you're being the client and you know, the, I'm sorry, you being the therapist and the client, right, is what might, have, what might come out of you. Oh, I noticed that I was, um, had angry consciousness, right? We want to bring that state of loving presence to that. So this is how they're tied together and, and why we use them. <clears throat> and then in this state of mindfulness, we're going to do little experiments in mindfulness. We're going to drop little pebbles in our pond and see what it evokes. And in the state of mindfulness, we're going to notice um, reactions or conditionings or things that we believe it's going to help in our growth. And then as we get into it, we'll talk about um, how we process that and what we do with it. And we've got a couple exercises that, that we'll get into that, that offer us little glimpses into how it works. But I think that's enough for tonight. So if you if you do want to get ahead, if you feel like it, you can read the handout on Hakomi. Uh, but definitely read the chapters one through five of the Rosetto book. So again, you've got the on the website, you've got the class plan. And so that is here, precepts program schedule. So for next class, we're going to read Rosetto chapters one through five. And I think you'll find it enjoyable. It's a light read. So any parting questions or comments? Anything that's not clear or that you need to discuss? Okay, well, thank you for your patience. Oh, go uh, ahead. Yes. Uh, just 
that's now the before you leave the zendo tonight you have a few minutes to meet me there i need to talk with you or someone about the altar before services tomorrow yes i'll be here thank you all right if there's nothing else i thank you so much for your participation um it's very heartening to see this you know I know a lot of us, a lot of people express frustration in our society and our world and the way things have been going the last few years and they seem to be going in a unhealthy and unwholesome direction and um, So just take a moment to to look around the room there's 25 people who have signed up to do nothing but try and develop an ethical practice an ethical way of meeting people in life, right? So this is the antidote, right? You're good. You guys are gonna digest this and you're gonna carry it out in the world. And I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. Bye.